It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. During the dark hours just before dawn, on a hot summer morning, reporters, friends, and families stood still with anticipation as headlights approached the crowd. On July 17, 1976, the nation let out a sigh of relief as a large Greyhound bus pulled up to the city of Chowchilla, California. It was an unusual sight to see as one man and 26 children wearing white prison coveralls were escorted off the vehicle. Parents rushed to hold the children tightly. It was the moment they'd hoped for since the afternoon of July 15th, the day the yellow school bus never returned home and 26 children and one man were buried alive. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. The Chowchilla bus kidnapping is the largest kidnapping for ransom in United States history. It was the second to last day of summer school for the kids at Dairyland School. Bus driver Edward Ray was bringing the bus of 26 children, ages ranging from 5 to 14, back home from a long day at the Chowchilla Fairgrounds pool. The trip was suddenly halted by a van blocking the road. When driver Edward slowed the bus to help, all of a sudden, two armed men took the entire school bus hostage. They drove the school bus to a slough miles away, where another van and a third kidnapper was waiting. The three kidnappers were 24-year-old Fred Woods and brothers James and Richard Schoenfeld, aged 24 and 22. The three men, who came from wealthy families, set their sights on kidnapping as many children as they could to demand a ransom of $5 million. After forcing the children and the school bus driver into the two vans, without food, water, or toilets, the kidnappers then forced them into a truck trailer that they had buried beneath the ground. After 16 hours of being buried alive, as air was running out, thanks to the bravery and determination and resilience exhibited by those children and bus driver Ed Ray, they were able to make a miraculous escape and return to safety. The three kidnappers pled guilty to kidnapping and ransom for robbery and were sentenced to life in prison. Upon the conviction being overturned on appeal over the definition of grave bodily injury, the three kidnappers were granted the possibility of parole. In 2012, Richard Schoenfeld was granted parole, and in 2015, his brother James was also released. After being denied parole 17 times, Fred Woods was released from prison in August of 2022, opening up wounds for the survivors who never escaped the trauma. 
Jennifer Brown Hyde was on that school bus. At nine years old, she and her older brother Jeff were two of the children who survived the nightmare. She joins me to share her experience and to discuss the profound impact it's had on her life to this very day. But first, Fox News San Francisco-based senior correspondent Claudia Cowan covered this very story in her podcast, Nightmare in Chowchilla, The School Bus Kidnapping. She joins me to recount this harrowing case that captivated the nation. It was a, a summer day. These kids in Chowchilla were just about to wrap up their summer school session. And in those days, in that area, summer school was not like a punishment or anything like that. This was more like a day camp where they would go and do activities on this particular day. It was a Thursday. They'd all gone swimming. And they were on the bus home at about 3.45. And uh, most of the kids were five, six, seven years old. And they were on the bus with their favorite bus driver, Ed Ray, Edward. And uh, they dropped off a few kids uh, on these very narrow farming roads. Chowchilla is a big farming community. It still is. It was then. It is still today. And after a little while, they came upon uh, a white van that had blocked an intersection. And the door of the van was open. All the kids and the bus driver uh, thought that this van had broken down. And so there was no fear or alarm at that point, but almost immediately, uh, two men got out of that van and they wore masks and they had weapons and they pointed these weapons and they ordered uh, Edward, the bus driver, to leave the driver's seat. And uh, the two masked men got on the bus. There was a third kidnapper involved. He then drove the van and followed behind the bus. And basically... They put all the kids in the back. They ordered all the kids in the back of the bus with the, you know, pointing their their weapons at these poor little frightened kids. And the kids knew when they saw their bus driver relinquish his driver's seat, they knew then something was wrong and that this was not some end of, you know, summer school prank or anything like that. So the bus then drives with the van following to a river slough. They called it like a drive riverbed. And that's where they parked the bus in this drive riverbed and they ordered all the kids out into the white van that had been there originally, as well as the second van that was waiting there. Half the kids got onto the white van, half the kids and the bus driver got on to a, a, a dark green or blue van. Then the kidnappers camouflaged this bus with bamboo and basically concealed it. You couldn't see it from the road. There was no way. Then the two vans took off with all these kids and their bus driver and drove around for about, gosh, I want to say about 12 hours. Now, the windows had been blocked out. These vans didn't stop. There was no food. There was no water. There was no bathroom breaks for these kids. They were still, many of them, in their wet bathing suits from the day at the pool. They were terrified. They had no idea what was going on. Meantime, back in Chowchilla, parents are calling the school going, you know, where are my kids? They haven't come home yet. And uh, the school secretary, yeah, we lost the school bus. The sheriff was called. He quickly put together a search team and a, a sheriff spotter plane finally spotted the bus down in the riverbed. They all gather around the bus. There's the bus and there's no sign of the kids. There's no footprints. There's a few personal effects that were left on the bus, but there's no sign of the kids or of the bus driver. So now parents are, are thinking, what could have happened? There was no clue. No ransom call had come in. 
No one knew what had happened to these children. Finally, about, again, 12, 13 hours later, the two vans arrive at a rock quarry in Livermore, which is about an hour and a half east of San Francisco. They order the kids out of these vans. And as they're taken out of the vans one by one, they have to give their name and their age and hand over some item so that these kidnappers have proof that they have these children. The kids are then ordered to climb down a ladder into a hole in the ground. And I think about this and it's just, it's mind boggling. It's just absolutely terrifying to think that these kids had to do this. One at a time, they have to descend a ladder into a box buried in the ground. It turned out to be a moving trailer, a moving trailer that had been buried underground. All the kids get into this buried box car. It's basically like a tomb. The kidnappers, you know, with their guns, stay right here, don't move. We'll be back. They cover the hole. They lift up the ladder. They cover the hole with a manhole cover and then put several batteries, like truck bat, heavy truck batteries on top of the manhole cover, conceal that in a box, and then pour rock and dirt on top of that and drive away. So you think of these 27 people buried underground. There's a little bit of, they have flashlights. There's a little bit of water, a little bit of food. There are mattresses and it's sweltering hot. Remember, this is the middle of July in California, Central Valley, California. It's very hot. These kids are frightened. They're crying. They're not knowing what is coming next. Just absolutely terrifying. The kidnappers then leave and they try to call in their $5 million ransom. They had heard several years earlier that California had a $5 million surplus. That's how they arrived at the $5 million ransom number. But as you can imagine, with the media attention on this story and the frantic parents in Chowchilla, all tying up the phone lines, 1976, long before cell phones, long before the internet, the kidnappers couldn't get their call through. So they, of course, had been up all night driving around. They decided to go home and take a nap. And they lived not far away in uh, Portola Valley, which is also uh, a suburb of the Bay Area. Well, while the kidnappers napped, these kids in this underground tomb devised a way to escape. The kidnappers did not know that on this bus, on this day, the one and only time he ever rode the school bus was a 14-year-old rodeo kid named Mike Marshall. Mike Marshall was not supposed to be on the bus that day, but he'd gotten in trouble and his mom said, you have to take the bus home. Because he was on the bus that day, that escape was able to happen. He was tough, he was strong, and he was saying, I'm not gonna die down here today. And with the bus driver and a couple of the other older boys, they devised a way to climb up and move that manhole cover out of the way and dig and claw through the dirt and bust up some of the mattress box springs and wedge open this plywood box. And so after hours and hours and hours of slowly clawing their way through this hatch, they were able to escape. And they had been underground in that boxcar for, I think, about 16 hours. So it was 12 hours driving around in the vans and then 16 hours buried underground with no idea of what would happen once they escaped or if they would escape. And they finally managed to dig themselves out of that boxcar. And it turns out that they were at a quarry that was owned by the ringleader's father. 
they were able to flag down help. The security guard saw this group, this disheveled group of kids and Ed Ray in the front. And of course, this was, you know, a big media story. The security guard knew immediately who these people were. And he said, you're safe now. I'm going to get you help. And he called the officials and the authorities came and they finally got these kids home on yet another bus, a Greyhound bus, gosh, at around 4 a.m. on Saturday. So this lasted from about 3.45 on Thursday to 4 a.m. on Saturday. And it's just a miracle. It is a miracle that no one was seriously hurt or died during this horrible ordeal. What I think about too, Claudia, is to that point about it being a rural community there, Chowchilla, the kids, the 26 children, their ages ranged from age five to 14-year-old Michael, who you mentioned, um, and then the bus driver, Ed Ray. And that is such a deeply diverse pool of kids, right? Because that's summer school and that's more of that rural community. And for them to be taken, driven over a hundred miles away to Livermore, to a quarry, the desolation there, especially at that time, Liverpool now is is a suburb of San Francisco, frankly. But back then, it was incredibly rural, and that quarry was you were unable to see into it from the outside. So, regardless of it being buried, it was frankly off the beaten path and totally below um, the surface level. And at the time, during those initial the 11 hours of driving and the 16 hours of being kept in that horrible underground uh, wannabe tomb, you know, the community rightly so had to rule out Ed Ray and make sure that he wasn't behind this. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, of course, he was hailed as a hero and the town of Chowchilla created an Ed Ray Day um, that celebrated him for every year past that until he passed away at the age of 91 in 2012. Ironically, also in 2012, um, one of the kidnappers was released. And as you and I discussed this, part of the additional trauma of this case was arguably a lack of accountability and some argue um, a miscarriage of justice in terms of how the kidnappers were dealt with in the criminal system. Well, all three of the kidnappers spent decades behind prison. All three are on parole now, and they are so far leading a crime-free life. We've tried repeatedly to talk to them. I don't think any of them have actually spoken to reporters since they've been released. I believe they are all still living in the Bay Area. When they were originally charged, one of the charges was causing great bodily injury because uh, one of the young kids, I believe, had, had injured herself Uh, maybe coming down the ladder, something like that. The defense appealed and that charge was, was thrown out. But that charge was attached to a life in prison without parole sentence. So when that charge was thrown out, the sentence uh, became life in prison with the possibility of parole. And a lot of the kids and a lot of their families felt that that was so uh, traumatizing. These kids felt that eventually these kidnappers would get out and try to find them again and finish the job. And for so many of these kids, you know, the ordeal, on the one hand, of course, no one died. On the other hand, for these kids, uh, they grew up, many of them, with so much trauma from this event, substance abuse, panic attacks, depression, things that that are still occurring today, all these years later. It's been more than 45 years. Thank you, Claudia. 
You can listen to Nightmare in Chowchilla, The School Bus Kidnapping at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back with more of this story. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. With me now is Jennifer Brown Hyde, who knows this story better than anyone. We were actually um, in summer school. And for us, summer school was not because we failed a grade or, you know, didn't do our studies. Summer school for us was more of a daycare program where we got to go and do arts and crafts and see our friends all summer. So um, my mom would always sign my brother and I up for summer school at Dairyland so that we could spend the summer with our friends. And so the kidnapping was actually on the day before the last day of school. So Mm -hmm. it was the next day was going to be the last day of summer school. And um, we were very excited. We had gone swimming that day. And so I can remember getting on the bus after going to the swimming pool And um, I still had my pink fuzzy swimsuit, my bikini on, and a pair of shorts and a halter top and my flip-flops. And I can remember getting on the bus to go home that day. Um, We actually lived closer to town, and so we went to the town school, Mm. whereas Dairyland was the country school. So um, we were excited to be able to get ready for school, go school shopping and all that. Um, I can remember getting on the bus and um, because I like to talk a lot, I always sat in the very back of the bus so that I could be away from the bus driver and not get in trouble for talking. And so I claimed my normal seat in the back of the bus and off we went. It was hot. We didn't have air conditioning. So it was very warm, uh, mid-July in the California, 100 and some degree weather. Can you share with us um, just before proceeding, how old you were that summer? And was your brother with you on the bus? And if so, how old was he as well? Um, I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and my brother was with me on the bus mm-hmm. and went to summer school with me every year. And he was a year older than me. And so he was 10 years old. So you were nine and he was 10 and it's hot. The windows are down. You're in the back holding court with your friends, chatting and excited about the upcoming shopping and free time and then back to school. And then what happened? Um, I can remember as we were driving down the road, we dropped off a few children at their regular stops. And then um, we just went on our merry way. I do remember when Edward stopped at a stop sign He took the bus out of our regular lane and over into the other lane because I could kind of see through the front of the bus that there was a white van, like broken down in the middle of the road. And so as he went to go around that, he stopped. And being in the back of the bus, I couldn't really hear and I couldn't really see what was going on. But I do remember one of the kidnappers getting on the bus with pantyhose over his face and a gun in his hands, pointed the gun at Edward, and Edward got up from his seat and proceeded to walk to the back of the bus where I was sitting. And at that point, I looked, my brother was sitting about midway on the bus, off to my left, and I can remember looking at him trying to determine 
was this a joke? Was this for real? What, what in the world was going on? And when I looked at my brother, I tried to gauge his reaction. And I remember my brother stood up like it was a joke and said, oh, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. And then they pointed the gun at him and told him to sit down and shut up. So at that point, I knew that it was serious. Um, being raised in a small town on a farm and being around weapons and guns, you didn't mess with guns in our house. They were to be used to hunt or they were used to kill an animal if, if they got injured. I mean, they were serious. They weren't something you played with. So I knew that the fact that they had guns, that Edward had gotten up from his seat and that my brother was told to sit down and shut up, that this was not a joke and this was a real serious situation. The age of the kidnappers, which will factor into, which we can get into later, um, some of the approach to the penalty that was leveled uh, toward them for incarceration. They were in their young 20s. And so many later, you know, called them young men and the like. Do you remember when you saw them or that one board the bus, did you feel that they were a young person? Were you able to ascertain any type of age associated with them? Obviously you were nine. So at that age, everyone is old, but at the same time, did you feel, okay, here's a young man that just boarded. Did you have any inkling about that? I did not. Um, if you've ever seen in person, somebody with pantyhose over their face, it's very distorting. And, um, it's one thing to, I will say it's one thing to see it on TV because a lot of people back in the seventies and eighties crime shows, they would have somebody that had pantyhose over their face instead of wearing a mask because it camouflages and distorts your features. But it was very distorting. You couldn't tell, I mean, you could barely tell that it was a man except mm. by the, you know, features of the body and, and the build. So no, there was no distinguishing age, just that it was, it was a very grotesque thing. And it makes the hair on my arm stand up to think about it. And to even see it on TV is something that uh, just brings back that it's a grotesque thing to look at. In a, the most tangential way of comparison, I will never forget when I was probably about 10 or 11 trick or treating with a girlfriend and then her parents were, you know, behind us at the street when we would go up to each house and one house, uh, the owner, the husband opened the door wearing pantyhose over his, his face and that it terrified me forever. I knew even in that instant, this is Halloween. It's okay. Sort of, but there was mm -hmm. a split instant because you're absolutely right. It is quite terrifying in person to see that. Um, and I, so even it's funny cause I'd sort of forgotten about it until you said that. And I was like, Oh yeah. Um, because that certainly had a big effect on me and it was a joke. You know, I'm, I'm reminded as well of, in the description of your story of when Polly class was abducted at age 12 from her bedroom in Petaluma, California, in 1992, the two girls that she was with having the slumber party with her two best friends, they too thought it was a joke. And, you know, as children, your first inclination is not the worst case scenario. Your first inclination is that things are still okay. What happened after you realized things were not okay? When Edward came back, he sat in the seat right to my left, right across from me, across the aisle from me. And I remember the other kids asking him, what's going on? Are these your friends? Is this a joke? Um, and he's like, just sit down and be quiet. 
because I think he understood the seriousness of it. And still at that point, we still didn't have a clue what was going on. And one of the kidnappers got in and sat down in Edward's seat. Another kidnapper got in, sat in the bus and turned around and pointed his gun down the aisle and looked at us. So one was driving facing forward and one was sitting in the first seat behind the driver's seat with his gun pointed down the aisle at us. And being a small child, I could barely see over the seats of the bus, let alone see over the rest of the children that were in front of me. So I didn't have a good visual of what was going on in the front. I just knew that Edward was out of his seat Mm -hmm. and that Edward was sitting in the back of the bus with me and that that was something that was serious. Um, And we drove down the road just a few miles and then they pulled off the road into a dry riverbed into the slough. And there was another van that was there waiting for us, the green van. And so at that point, I kind of started to realize that this was something that was uh, multiple people that were involved. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know how many people were going to be there in the green van waiting for us or what they were going to do. Did the kidnappers say anything? I don't remember them saying anything. Mm-hmm. I remember them when they got on the bus saying, sit down and shut up. And then Edward kept telling all of us kids to be quiet. You need to be quiet. And like I said, I could barely see to the front of the bus over the seat in front of me with all the other kids. And so I don't remember a lot. I remember looking out the windows thinking, you know, where are they taking us? What are they going to do with us? Um, But I don't remember any conversation at that point. Do you remember seeing any cars as you were looking out the window and driving that had passed? No, there were no cars out in the rural area that we were in. There were fields. They were probably, I don't know, picking corn at the time. There was probably some crop that they were out picking. Um, But no, there were no vehicles. Um, There were no cars. I didn't even see any tractors, which is what we normally would have seen. Mm -hmm. So then you approach the now green van and the white van was had been driven in tandem with the school Mm -hmm. bus. And so then what happened? Um, So as we pulled off into the slew bed, um, the ride was kind of bumpy. So we had to hang on to the seats. And I remember, you know, bouncing around for a while and they pulled us down into the slew bed. And then they backed up one of the vans to the door. And I could see up front some of the kids were getting off and they were putting them into the van one at a time, making them, you know, jump from the bus to the van one at a time. And as they were loading children and the kids started exiting, I saw my brother get up and go off into the first van. And then they pulled that van away and then they backed the other van up and they said, the rest of you, you need to get up and uh, come with us. And so the rest of us, including Edward, were put into um, the second van. And when you saw your brother get into that other van, what? did you feel? Anxious, very anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I knew the other kids on the bus. I've been raised with the other kids on the bus. I know most of them all my life, but to have my brother being taken off, I was worried about what was going to happen to him. What were they going to do to him? And the fact that they were separating us, where were they taking us? Were they going to take us to different places? Um, so I was pretty anxious to see him leave. I was glad that I still had Edward because I still had an adult that I knew and trusted um, with me 
at that time. But yeah, I was pretty anxious to be separated from him. During that time, what was the tenor on the bus? Was it frightened silence? Were kids crying? I mean, the the span of ages were from five to 14. So I can only imagine what the poor five and six and seven-year-olds were feeling during that time, their fear. And can you describe whether it was, you know, where there's crying or screaming? And There was all of that. The younger kids were not able to um, control their crying mm-hmm. and their screaming. Um, I can remember um, the younger ones just hugging on to anybody that happened to be sitting near them, walking mm-hmm. near them, and then sitting in the van with us. Um, I myself was silent at that point, which was really out of character because I was never quiet. Um, so I was somewhat, I think, shock in shock at that point that mm-hmm. started um, until they put us in the vans and then closed the doors and there was no light. There was no food, no water. There was no bathrooms. And not knowing at that point in time that we were actually going to be in there for quite a long time, it was just a matter of, or are they going to take us somewhere else and put us, you know, in another vehicle? Or I don't really think I thought at that point in time what was going to happen to us. Um, but, yeah, at that point, it was just sort of panic and just chaos. Um, where's my, you know, where's my brother? Everybody else want to know there were multiple sets of siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, one family had actually four sisters that were kidnapped. There were lots of pairs, like my brother and I, lots of sibling sets that were there. And a lot of us were separated from the siblings, usually on the bus. Um, usually the older kids sat in the back and the younger kids would sit up towards the front. I don't know how I got lucky enough to sit in the back of the bus, but my brother was actually sitting up towards the front with, at the time, his girlfriend. She got to have him to comfort her during the whole ordeal. And I got Edward. <laughs> which was okay, but not what I really wanted. Um, but so there were a lot of uh, families that were separated during that time. Jennifer, the one 14 year old whose name is Michael Marshall, it's my understanding that he didn't usually ride the bus and that he rode the bus that day because uh, he had gotten in sort of minor trouble with his mom who said, I'm not going to pick you up today. You're going to take the bus. And my question is, do you remember, because it's my understanding that he sort of almost missed the bus and that the either Edward or a a teacher had to say, you know, we're leaving, hurry up, hurry up. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember him boarding the bus late and anything associated with that? Um, I don't remember him when he boarded the bus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Believe me, everybody on that bus knew that Mike was on the bus because most of the young girls just thought Mike was it. Um, And we were were blessed (laughs) to have him on the bus with us that day. So, yes. Um, Every school has at least one, that's for sure. Yes. And let me just say, Mike was not happy about being in summer school, so he Mm. was very quiet and kept to himself, but that was just Mike. But, yeah, I don't know when he got on the bus. I just know that he was on the bus. Mm -hmm. And do you remember, as you then were putting these two vans, do you remember if he was in the the front with your brother van or was he with you and Ed in Edward in the state in the second van? And did that no. provide a measure of comfort for anyone? He was in the first van with my brother. Okay. Um, the only person that 
I remember um, of any comfort in the van that I was in was Edward. Okay. So he was the only male, you know, over than 10 years old um, that I remember in the bus with me. The kidnappers then proceeded to drive the 26 children, you included, and the school bus driver, Edward Ray, um, over 100 miles to Livermore, California. Mm-hmm. And that took 11 hours. During that time, there was no food or water or bathroom breaks. Can you describe what that was like and what you felt during that time? Were the kids able to communicate? Did you have to stay in silence? We did not stay in silence. Um, There were a lot that did, but at that point in time, I think the shock wore off and I had yelling conversations, well, one-way conversations with the kidnappers to let them know that they had made a mistake by kidnapping us and that when my dad got a hold of them, that they were going to be in trouble. And I proceeded to yell at them for a good few minutes when we got in the van because like I said, the shock wore off. I think more of my actual personality came out that this was just unreasonable. And I don't know who they thought that they were and how did they think that they were going to get away with this to the point that Edward like literally was like, would you just please be quiet? You're going to make this worse. And I'm like, how could this possibly get any worse? Right. Um, this is not acceptable. And um, after being around, driven around for a while, I can remember everybody just kind of quiet and you could hear the kidnappers conversations because literally they were within inches of where we were. There was like a piece of plywood between us and them. And I can remember them popping a soda can to take a drink. Mm. And um, I can remember them stopping and putting gas in because you could smell it. It was nauseating to smell the gas because you envision a bunch of kids sitting in the back of a van with no restrooms. And these are children who can't control their bladders. There's sweat because literally my hair was just caked to my body. I had taken my clothes off because I had my swimsuit on. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there in a swimsuit with my hair caked to my face, sweat, tears, crying. The stench was just unbelievable. I mean, it was inhumane. And then the smell of gas, they'd stop and you could hear a gas can that they must have had in the front with them get out. You could hear them talking. And as the sun went down, sometimes you could see a thin crack of light through the door. But then as time passed, it got completely pitch dark. I mean, you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. It was you you had to feel, you know, to see who was around you. And it got very quiet. We sang for a while, sang some, you know, church songs. And I can remember we sang, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Um, And boogie fever, get down tonight, you know, some popular 70s music. And, you know, some Bible, we sang some church songs and that just to kind of keep us occupied. And then just realized that this could go on forever, you know, and we dozed off and we slept. um, And... I don't really remember having any meaningful, meaningful conversations with anybody in there. There wasn't the, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? What? It, because it was so unknown at that point. Can I ask you about the exchange between you and Edward, the school bus driver, where in your absolutely 
correct rage and indignance at the kidnappers and yelling at them and then having him sort of admonish you at, at a certain point and saying, Shh, keep quiet, you know, both sort of reflecting one is compliance and one is, you know, resistance. And when you think back to that moment, um, do you feel that you appreciated at that age, that young yet mature age and that, that mentality of, I will not stand for this and no, I will not be quiet. I will resist. I respected him enough and Edward spent most all of his time on the bus with me telling me to sit down and be quiet. So mm. um, it was just kind of went along with the way that my life with Edward was, was <laughs> you just need to sit down and be quiet. So, and I respected him enough that I was like, okay, I'm fine. I'm finally done. I, I can be quiet now. And you know, a few other kids were like, oh, gosh, just be quiet. And I'm like, OK, mm. I'm done. I'll be quiet now. I, I said what I wanted to say. And then I thought about it and thought, well, that wasn't really very smart. So <laughs> I mm. probably should have just shut up. Be, but that was just my true personality coming out at that point in time. I'm glad that they heard you say that. So your van had two of them and there were three total. So the other van you were in, could you tell whether you were in the the white van or the green van? Because you had said earlier that they, they pulled the... I think I was in the white van, you know, after 47 mm -hmm. years, there are some details that I don't remember. But mm -hmm. when I say that, it was the green van first because it was the van that was waiting for us. Mm -hmm. That was the first to back up. And then the white van was the second van. So I must have been in the white van. So based on this, it's it seems that one kidnapper was in that white van in, in front and then, or green, sorry, and then two were, in, were driving your van because you heard them communicating. And mm -hmm. so 11 hours later, then you arrive in Livermore, California to what we now know was a query. Can you describe what that transition was like and the events that unfolded when you arrived there? Yeah, we were stopped for a while because now I know that they unloaded the green van first to go down into the hole. And so our van was the second van to be unloaded. And so we sat for a while and we were very quiet because we were trying to hear what were they doing? Because during the whole time we'd been gone, they would stop and put gas in, but we never stopped for very long. So when we actually got to the quarry, we stopped and were parked for quite a while and we didn't hear any noise. We didn't hear any gas cans. So we thought, well, you know, we must be ultimately wherever we are. And I can remember when they opened the doors to the van, there were bright lights, not sunlight, but like artificial light, like construction site, huge lights. It was blinding after being in there in the dark. They opened the doors. They grabbed one kid from inside the van, pulled them outside and shut the doors. And then we were dead silent, like what just happened? And then we listened and we could hear him kind of talking, but I couldn't really hear much. And then they'd open the door, grab another kid, close the doors again. And we listened and thought, okay, well, I don't hear any gunfire, so they're not shooting them. What are they doing? And then they open the door and they grab another one. So as they were doing that, I scooted back to the very back of the van and I thought, oh my God, they're going to remember that I'm the one that was in here mouthing off to them. 
I don't even want to speak now. I was terrified. So every kid went ahead of me (laughs) and I kept scooting to the back and I thought maybe I'll just scoot back here and they'll just forget about me. I don't want to go wherever they're taking the rest of those kids. I don't care if my brother's there or not. I am now terrified because the minute I speak, they're going to realize I'm the one that was mouthing off to them. So one by one by one, they got off. They took Edward out. Um, and I was the actual last person out of the white van. And I can remember I scooted all the way to the back. And when they opened the doors, they just kind of pointed at me and said, you come here. And so I remember scooting out to the edge of the van and I had to literally jump to get out. And I grabbed somebody's clothes that were sitting by the door because I had a little pink bikini on. Yeah. And even though I was nine years old, I was self-conscious because... I didn't know what was going on. So I grabbed somebody's shirt to cover myself up with. And I remember they asked me my name. They asked me my age and they grabbed the shirt from me. And with the lights, I I couldn't even look. I mean, I, I couldn't even see their faces. I was so short and so little and didn't even want to look at the light. And then I remember they pointed and said, you need to go over there. And I looked and it, all I could see sticking up out of the ground was, the top of a wooden ladder. So I could see that it was a ladder, but I didn't know where it went. And they said, you need to go down there. And I thought, where is everybody? I'm like, you want me to go down there? And then I thought, well, if I'm going down there, I'm sure the rest of them are probably down there. So I'm going down there. And I grabbed a hold of the ladder and started climbing down. And then I heard voices, saw people, saw my brother, saw Edward, and then saw what I don't even know what it was. I don't even know how to describe like the feel of a basement, but not human, more like, uh, I don't even know how to describe what it was. It had wire on the walls. So it just kind of looked like a dog kennel, but underground, but with mattresses and with people and no air. And then I remember I was the last one down. They threw a roll of toilet paper down. They gave Edward a flashlight and some batteries and said, we'll be back for you and put a metal plate over the top. And then it was pitch dark. Going back to the moment before you went down that ladder, you said they had pointed to the ladder and said, you need to get down there. Did they point with their hands or fingers or were they still holding their guns and gestured with their weapons? They had guns, but I don't remember what they pointed with. I just followed the direction of Mm -hmm. there. There was nothing else but poles for the construction lights, the kidnappers, and the hole. So when they said go down there, I mean, there was nothing else. There was no other choice. I don't know what they motioned with. I just, and I didn't look at him in the face. I mean, I probably looked at him like not even chest level because I was little itty bitty. Other than when they boarded the bus and pointed the weapon at you children, do you remember them pointing the weapon at you after that at any point? I don't remember, I remember it pointing down the aisle when they boarded the bus. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't really look at him a lot. Like I said, their faces were so creepy. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to look at them. Mm -hmm. I knew they were there, but I didn't want to look at them. It's like, 
something scary on Halloween. You know it's there, but I don't need to look at it again to get that shock factor because I knew that they were there. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how scared I was. I didn't want to look at them. Part of my curiosity about that seemingly small detail is as you are describing these events, they're so horrific to appreciate and feel vicariously through your story. I cannot imagine what it was like to have gone through that, especially at the age of nine. And the way that their youth, which again, we will talk about a little later, and the way that they articulated their motive, which was simply financial and which was so cavalier, um, how they described their approach to kidnapping children, which they described as precious to explain why that would ensure a payout for them. You know, to me, it's just a really difficult contrast to stomach because that cavalier attitude and the motive of $5 million is in a different galaxy than the absolute horror that you endured and that you suffered at the hands of these people, of these monsters. So after they left and the you heard the, I'm imagining sort of an eclipse because that was the bright lights at the top of the circle. So I'm imagining the, the cover covering the one source of bright light. And then you are in this wire square and you weren't sure what it was. Did Edward turn on the flashlight at that point? So you had light. I remember um, most of us went to one end of the hole because somebody told us that there were toilets. And what the kidnappers had actually done was they had cut holes in the wheel well and set some toilet paper there. And so Mm -hmm. there's two wheel wells in the semi. And so he would turn the light on enough so that we could find the bathroom and then turn the light off enough so that we could use the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And then we just kind of stumbled around. Once we all took care of that, then we just sat around and, um, There was some food and water, which we hadn't had in many hours. And we kind of took a head count to make sure that everybody was actually there. And then we kind of slept because we, some of us hadn't really slept good at all. We drank the water, which we didn't really think about rationing it. And it was gone. The peanut butter and bread and cereal, gone. And then after a few hours, the air quality, gone. And we sang some more songs and visited and talked a little bit, slept some more. And um, then it got really desperate as far as this cannot be. We're out of food. We're out of water. Um we're going to die down here because hours went by and they didn't come back for us. And did your concept of time, was it because of people wearing watches? Like did Mike have a watch on or Edward? And so did we know specifics at that time? I don't remember any concept of time. I'm Mm -hmm. sure that the older kids who were with Edward kind of formulating a plan of what to do to get out we're privy to those details. I was in the corner crying. I was mm. praying. I was, you know, trying to get to my brother who was sitting with his girlfriend 
Mm -hmm. and um, just trying to survive um, after I don't know how many hours, I just started praying. And I wasn't really raised in church, but I prayed to God. And if he got me out of there, I was going to do my chores. I was going to stop fighting with my brother. I was going to, you know, do good in school. And then I told God that if he got me out of there, I was going to go to church every Sunday. That that was all that I knew that I could do to try to bargain for my life and for the life of the rest of us was just to pray because the air, the fans that they had put in, the batteries had stopped and the air had stopped and you, we could just feel it. Just the darkness, the despair, the hopelessness of the situation. And I started having dreams, you know, I fell asleep and would wake up and, you know, like think, oh my God, I'm still here. This just can't be. Um, so up to that point, I think the not knowing what was going on just kind of kept us all going because it was like something going on. But then once we were down there for hours upon hours upon hours and we were out of food, water and air, you know, the desperation was like, just curl up in the corner. I'm just going to die. This mm -hmm. is it. I'm just going to die right here. You were there a little over 16 hours. Can you describe the events that led to the escape? And what started to happen? You mentioned a moment ago, it was the, the older children were sort of discussing with Edward. Mm -hmm. um, and the rest of you, as you were talking, did the conversation focus on what was going on? Or did you feel that the younger ones were able to a little bit be distracted by other conversations while the big kids were devising the eventually successful plan? Um, I don't think the younger ones, including myself, probably from 10 down to five, had a clue what was going on. I had no idea. Um, and I'm usually Miss Busybody and in the <laughs> middle of everything, but I had no idea. But Edward and Mike Marshall, um, Robert Gonzalez, Jody Matheny, Jody Heffington, my brother Jeff, had conversations. And I remember they started stacking up mattresses so they could reach the top where the hole was. Were these and mattresses... Excuse my interruption for a second. Were they um, like the little ones that are at camp and in trailers or were they, they the, the big full size mattresses, full size mattresses, a few of them to move them? They may have been twin mattresses, mm -hmm. but they were big mattresses. They were not bunk bed mattresses. They were not. They were regular thick mattresses and they stacked them, started stacking them up with the first step. And I forgot to clarify this, that when you got down there before they stacked them up for the escape, were the mattresses laid out um, flush against each wall, except for where the, the wheel wells and the toilets were, but essentially did they, did they line the entire inside of the floor against the wall? Were there 27 total or was it, you know, around 10 and how, how was that laid out so that we can all appreciate the that's a situation. good question. I don't know how many mattresses there were. I do know that when they stacked them up, they were able to get to the top. Right. So my guesstimation would be 12 to 20 of them. Mm -hmm. And they were not stacked around the walls. They were just stacked all over. Some of them were stacked like too deep, all like all the way around. Hmm. So wherever we walked, we were walking on mattresses. I like, see. All over the place. And okay. there was enough for them to stack them up 
And so as kids were laying or sleeping on them, they'd move them out of the way. Go over there to that side. We're going to take that mattress. And they started stacking them up so they could get to the top, probably in the beginning, to see if they could hear anything. And then to actually see if they could get out. Um, And I remember the conversation was, we're going to die in here. So if we're going to die, we're going to die trying to get out of here. So they're going to die in here because we're out of food, water, and air. Or as soon as we get up there, they're going to shoot us because they have guns. And obviously they have guns so that if we try to escape, they can shoot us. So I remember them banging on the top of the hole on the metal, trying to see if they could get a reaction to see if there was anybody there. And there was no reaction. And so then they tried to move the steel plate that was covering the hole. And that took Mike and Edward and Robert and Jeff and Joe. I mean, everybody's efforts a little bit at a time to try to get that plate moved. And when they started to move the plate, then dirt and dust would fall down in. Mm. And then it would get really hard to breathe. Mm. And then they let the air kind of, you know, still for a while. And then they'd move the plate a little bit more. And then Mike could get his hand up in there. So you at the top of the stack of mattresses, all four of those boys, or five, were were all together at the top of the stack. And they were all five hands were pushing in the same direction to try to get it. And then they would wait while the dust came down right. and then they would keep going. So all, all of the hands at one time, all the... Or one, at a, one or two at a time mm-hmm. would try and then they'd take a break. Mm-hmm. And then two more fresh bodies would come up and try to move. And then when they got it to move a little bit, I remember they Mike got his hand up in there and could feel in there. And he could feel there were two semi-batteries mm-hmm. that they had set on top of the metal plate. And that's why they couldn't get the metal plate to move. So little bit at a time... They were trying to move and they would stick their hand up and Edward would move it around for a while and then he would come down and then Mike would go up and he would move the batteries, try to push them to the side and get the dirt out of there. And that went on for hours. I slept. I mean, I was like, I'm of no help right now. I don't even know what they're doing. They're going to, you know, probably going to, we're all just going to die. It was just Mm. desperate times at that moment. And, um, Little by little, by little by little, hours upon hours upon hours, they got the batteries out of the way and they moved the plate enough that Mike could climb up in there. Edward was too large, but Mike was young and small enough, even though he was 14. He was a grown man, but he was small enough that he could get in the area where the steel plate and the batteries were and they come to realize they had built a metal or a wooden box over the hole and so he started kicking with his feet on the sides of that wood and as he did sand would come falling down Mm. and they um, they had gotten the metal batteries down and dropped them into the hole on the mattresses to get them out of the way so that he had more room to work and this went on for hours and there was nobody that was stopping him. So we either thought they're there waiting for us and they're going to shoot him as soon as he comes out, 
after all these hours of trying to escape, or they're just not there. So either way, we're just going to keep going. We're just going to keep going. And so Mike would kick the wood and then he'd come down and then Robert would go up there and kick for a while. And then he would come down and this, it just went on and on. I lost track of who was doing what. I just know they were working. And then I can remember when he must have kicked the wood enough that he broke the wooden box and it was sunlight. And this like ray of light just shined right down. You could see the dust and dirt particles in it, but you could see the light because we'd been in dark for so long. The flashlight had run out of batteries. There was no more light. And then we got quiet because we thought, oh, my God, what if they're up there? They're, they're going to shoot him. Mike just kept on going, climbed out, looked around, came back down and said, Edward, there's nobody up here. Hand me them kids. And one by one, we just got pulled up out of the hole. And I can remember getting up. And then I remember looking and thinking, we're in the same place we started off in. I saw the sand. I saw the kind of brush and debris. And I thought, we're back in the slough. What is going on? We're back in the same place. I couldn't, I couldn't place where we were, but it was very similar vegetation. I mean, it looked to me like, oh, my God, we're right back where we started. And um, off in the distance, we could hear machinery and, like, heavy equipment. And we thought either those are the people that took us or those are the people that are going to save us. Mm. And so... They had taken Edward's clothes from him. He was in his underwear. Mm-hmm. And most of us kids had our swimsuits or a pair of shorts. I mean, and dirt stuck to our head. My hair was stuck to my face. I had tear marks down my face, caked with dirt, sweat. It, it, we looked just atrocious. I mean, we looked, if somebody saw us, which when they did, they thought, oh, my God, where did you come from? But we uh, all huddled together and started walking towards the sound of the heavy equipment. And when we got around a clump of trees and some bushes, we looked up and I remember telling somebody it looked like the Flintstones because they had like where Fred and Barney would go to work. They had conveyor belts and they had rocks coming by. And I I expected to see dinosaurs come out because... It was just like these conveyor belts and rocks. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, that's just like the Flintstones. <laughs> In my little pea brain, that was all yeah. I could think of was it's the Flintstones. And I remember some guy in a hard hat came running over to us. Mm. And Edward said, you know, he, the guy's like, where did you guys come from? And Edward's like, we're from Chowchilla and we're lost. And the guy was like, oh, my God you're on the news. They're looking for you. And then we were like, maybe he didn't have anything to do with it. Cause if he did, he wouldn't have acted so surprised to see us. And we went walking towards other people. They blew this loud whistle. And to me, it was like on the Flintstones when their shift ended at the plant, they would pull this big whistle and everybody would stop and they'd all, you know, go to their cars and go home. All these people came running out, looking at us like, what is going on here? And I can remember they came to us with 
food and water and they had their lunch boxes and they were taking mm-hmm. out soda. They broke into a soda machine and were getting drinks out of it. They literally tipped it over, broke it open, were handing us, you know, apples and their bologna sandwich mm-hmm. and were feeding us. And then the SWAT team came and we had the helicopters, I mean, full on SWAT. And so at that point we were like, well, I don't think these people had anything to do with it. I think we're probably going to be okay. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. How long, obviously, again, I understand there, there was no ability to ascertain the exact timing of that, but did it feel like a long time that you were with the employees of the quarry before the SWAT team came or did it feel like very fast? Everything happened very fast. You know, you, you were found, you, you sat down, you were eating and then all of a sudden. No, it seemed like, like instantly, like they were there. Like I barely sat down on a picnic table and got a bite out of somebody's apple before the SWAT team, the helicopters, they showed up, um, police cars, like full all on a blaze it seemed like I barely got a bite out of that apple before the police were there. And then from that point on, it was just mad chaos because they took us and they put us on a prison bus with all the windows boarded up and bars on it. And so we're like, you're kidding. You want us to get back on a bus? And they're like, yeah, we need to take you you know, I don't even know where they said they were taking take us to the police department. I'm like, what are you going to do with 26 kids? And then they actually took us to Santa Rita Rehabilitation Center, which is oh. a minimum security prison. Yeah. So, like, we go driving through <laughs> past the guard shack with all this razor wire. And we thought, oh, they're going to keep us safe. So they're going to put us in here so that nobody could, you know, come get us mm. again. And... Then they had nurses there that met with each one of us. Uh, I remember they washed my face. They gave me a hair tie to pull my hair back. Um, And they gave us um, prison coveralls to put on because that looked like the only clothes they had. (sighs) And so I've seen pictures of us in the news where there's this whole room of us kids. And we've all got these white prison with like those sleeves rolled up (laughs) and... um, They gave us crayons to color, and I can remember one of the nurses cut an apple for me because I didn't have any front teeth. My front teeth were missing, and I couldn't eat. So it was a male nurse, and uh, Bill cut the apple for me and fed me an apple and colored with me. And then the police talked to Edward, and then they said, you guys are going home. And they put us on a Greyhound bus and took us home. And during that time, during from the getting outside and and going toward the machinery, encountering the employees eating, and then the SWAT coming, taking you to prison, um, can you describe the reaction of the children? Was there tears of relief and was there still shock? Was there a lot of suspicion, which you sort of alluded to in the beginning, where only when the SWAT came did you feel like, okay, we're actually safe? Can you describe how that manifested in the kids' reactions? Um, I think once they got us to Santa Rita and they put us in the room and they gave us crayons, they gave us some food. Um, I can remember a bunch of us, the younger kids, just laughing and coloring. And it was like, oh, this is all done for right now. 
I mean, this, we're safe. Right. We got crayons and we got an apple. So, you know, kids are very resilient in that regard. Whereas I'm sure that Edward and Mike and Robert and the older kids and that were probably like, what the hell just happened? They got questioned as far as descriptions. The mm. rest of us, little, no, they didn't ask me. They, they just asked me if I was okay. Are you okay? okay? I'm fine. Yeah, I just want to go home. My mom's probably mad I didn't feed the cows. I mean, I need to go home. I need to go see my mom. And my brother needs to leave his girlfriend alone and come <laughs> over here and talk to me. So, yeah, I was a little irritated with that. So, um, yeah, but it was, at that point, it was kind of like we can take a breath. Mm -hmm. We're all together. We're actually all okay. You know, we aren't physically harmed at this moment. Mm -hmm. And... We just want to go home. It's time to go home. Mm -hmm. We need to go home now. My mom's waiting and I need to go home. And so um, they put us on the Greyhound bus to go home. And some of the nurses rode with us. And um, Bill, the male nurse that, that had helped me, and Dave, other male nurse that were there, um, and a few other nurses um, rode the bus with us children back home to, to Chachilla. And... I can remember having nightmares on the way home and um, waking up screaming, not knowing where I was. And um, then I can remember when we got there and we got off the bus, Bill and I were sitting up towards the front. Um, where where did they drive you? Sorry for interrupting. You said when we got there, did they drive you to the police station in Chowchilla or the school or what no, location? They, they took us to the police station because okay. that was like the headquarters while we were missing. Because mm -hmm. our tiny little town didn't have much, but we had a, it was the police department and the judicial system, like one courtroom all in one together and the fire department on the backside. Yeah. So it was like one big, the um, public safety complex. Yeah. That was it right there. Okay. And so, um, they took us there and I can remember pulling up Bill and I were sitting in the front because I kept having nightmares. And the only mm -hmm. way I could get light was to be towards the front. Cause as we were driving down the road, you could see cars and you could see, you know, the street lights and that. So Bill and I moved to the front of the bus and I can remember I, I may have been the first one off the bus. I've seen pictures of it. Oh, my God. I looked dazed and confused. Mm. Like, I didn't have a clue where I was. Um, and I can remember getting off, and there were news reporters, cameras with lights. And so here we go back to these bright lights and a huge crowd, more people in Chachilla than I'd ever seen in my entire life because we didn't have that many people in that town. And just crowds of people. And I can remember they parted the crowd for us to walk through. And I can remember my mom taking me and we went into the police station and she said, your dad's going to get your brother and then we're going to go home. <sighs> and so we just sat and waited and my dad came in with my brother. And I remember my dad leaning down. I was sitting in a chair. My dad leaned down and said, did they touch you? And I'm like, did who touch me? Like who is like the people that took you? Did they did 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 they touch you? And I'm like, no, dad, they didn't touch me. Nobody, nobody touched me. I'm, I'm fine. I didn't know what he was talking about. Later, mm -hmm. he just wanted to know if we were, you know, sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what he wanted. And then we loaded up in the station wagon and my mom and dad took my brother and I home. Do you remember what time of day? Was that daytime or nighttime? To me, it was early, early morning. Yeah. Because when we got home, 
Um, I can remember my dad got up to feed the animals. Mm-hmm. We lived on a farm and I can remember sleeping. My mom was in my room sleeping with me mm-hmm. and I got home and um, I laid down for a while. And then my mom got up and gave me a bath mm-hmm. because when she laid down next to me in bed, my hair smelled so bad she couldn't sleep. She said it, your hair was just moldy and so she gave me a bath and then we laid back down and I know my dad got up to feed the animals. Did you talk about the experience, notwithstanding that, that your dad asked you about in that line of questioning, did you talk about the experience as a family after that? Did your parents sit down with you and your brother and discuss it? That, that morning that we got home, my mom got out a tape recorder and I tape, I told the whole story that she's got on cassette tape. Wow. Do you know, did she have that idea on her own? Is that something that the investigators told all the parents to do? No, probably not. My mom was a legal secretary and Mm -hmm. my dad was a deputy sheriff. So Mm -hmm. for both of them, that probably was just standard procedure. She just wanted to know while my dad said what happened because nobody knew at that point, nobody knew who took us, where they took us, what, I mean, all they really told the parents was your kids have been found and they were buried alive. They didn't know. So my mom and dad sat down and while my brother and I were talking about it, my mom got the tape recorder and just taped the conversation. So no, we talked about it and that was not, and still is not uncommon in our family to talk about things like talk it out and talk. And um, then I remember after, I don't know, a day or so, my brother and I met with FBI agents to do a composite drawing of the kidnappers. And so we helped in the investigation while they still were at large and didn't even know who had taken us. Did your dad share what it was like to be a deputy sheriff dealing with this case and also a father of two who had been kidnapped and how Um, he, well, my dad's full-time job was a teacher. Mm. And so he was a um, reserve officer with the sheriff's office. So that wasn't his full-time job, but he had law enforcement experience when I was a baby and my dad was going to college. He went to college and his nighttime job, he would get dressed and he was sheriff. He was a sheriff's officer and would leave Mm. um, in the evening. So I can remember that when I was a little kid, we had a police dog that my dad took on patrol with him that I was raised with a German shepherd. Mm. Um, so that was just, you know, who my dad was. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't, I don't remember that aspect Mm -hmm. of what was going on. I just knew that we lived out in the country and, um, we had people at our house nonstop all the time between neighbors and friends. We had family came to town and news reporters. Once the reporters found out that my mom and dad would allow my brother and I to speak, they were at our house all the time. Reporters were calling or just show up at the door, you know, when you guys want to talk. And we didn't really give a lot of interviews until after the kidnappers were found because my mom and dad didn't want our names and our pictures out there mm-hmm. while they were still at large. Do you remember then when the kidnappers were identified, 
and the motive articulated, the connection to the quarry uh, published, you know, et cetera. Do you remember all of that unfolding and sort of appreciating what it all meant at that moment? I do. I remember as um, the composite drawings came out and we saw those on the news because back then you didn't have the Internet. You had we had four TV stations that our antenna got. We didn't have cable TV, so we got four stations. And um, they the San Francisco stations would pick up the major highlights of it, and then it would feed down to our little TV station, you know. And the composite drawings came out, and then little by little pieces would come out that um, they knew who had buried the moving van. Because the quarry owner's son was seen there. So they did a search warrant and went and found the ransom note that they were going to do. So they started piece by piece publicizing pieces to how they found them. And then the younger Schoenfeld brother turned himself in. And then the older one was, you know, caught trying to, you know, cross the Canadian border And then Fred Woods was caught. And so piece by piece by piece, what we learned was what was on the news. So we just kind of watched it all unfold on TV. Did you participate in the trial at all? I did. Um, They were trying to prove bodily harm. And so any of the victims that had any type of physical harm were called to testify. And when I jumped from the bus to the van, I didn't quite make it. And I cut my knee on the license plate frame. And so they considered that bodily harm. Mm -hmm. So I had to testify. So I had to go to the Bay Area for the trial and sit in the courtroom with them sitting right in front of me. And my mom couldn't go in the courtroom with me because she also had to testify. So my dad went in with me and sat next to me in the jury box. <sighs> and I remember my dad stuck his hand out and said, give me your gum before you go in there, because I know that you will try to spit your gum at them. <laughs> so I can remember me handing him my gum. And then when we were in the um, trial, I can remember the district attorney always told us when we were preparing for it, look at him. Mm-hmm. Don't look at the kidnappers. Mm-hmm. Don't let them, you know, get to us. So I can remember looking at Mr. Manier and he always stood to one side where I didn't have to look at the kidnappers. Mm-hmm. And I did what I needed to do. I said what I needed to said. And as I was walking out of the courtroom, I just broke down and my mom was walking in to give her testimony. And she said one of the hardest things she ever had to do was see me as I walked out, broken down, and she had to walk in and give her testimony. Mm. So I, I can remember um, when we were up there for the trial, they put us up in a hotel. And one of the other victims and I got in the elevator and went down to the lobby to get cookies or something that they had. And we got stuck in the elevator between floors. It was it went on for like an hour and a half. They had to call the fire department. So then... Somebody in the news media heard that kidnapped victims were stuck in an elevator. So then when we came out of the elevator, which was stuck between floors, so we had to, they had to reach down and grab us and pull us out. Here was all these news cameras. And I thought, oh. Man, we can't do anything these days without, you know, the news being there. But 
yeah, that was quite an adventure. Yeah. That's an unbelievable. Yeah. Not only was I in deep trouble because my mom told me to quit messing around in the elevator and not to go down to the lobby. But then I'm thinking, oh, God, after an hour and a half, maybe she's going to forget that I'm in trouble right now. (laughs) Did you um, ever share with your dad what you had yelled to the kidnappers in the van? Oh, yeah. Everybody knew. I mean, yeah, it's probably in one, if not both of the books that Mm -hmm. I told them exactly you know, they didn't know who they were messing with. And I probably used a few curse words. And so, yeah. And what did your dad say when you told him? He probably said something to the effect of, yeah, that's my girl, he said, but I'm glad Edward probably got, finally got you to sit down and be quiet. So can you share your reaction? Um, You know, the, the three kidnappers were convicted, but upon appeal, uh, the, issue around the grave bodily injury rendered them able to uh, get out on parole. And all three of them were released at different times and at different iterations before the parole board. Um, last was Woods, obviously, on his 18th time before them. And part of what your case illustrates is sort of the disconnect between um, mental and psychological injuries versus physical ones and how at that time the really justice system didn't have an accounting and an ability to to account for the incredible uh, lifetime of trauma that you all endured. Can you share about your feelings um, regarding that appeal and the their parole and the injury situation? Um, many, many, many years ago, as a young child, a young girl in my teenage years and that I decided that the justice system was going to do whatever they were going to do to keep them in. And they would get released when the parole board and the justice system felt that they were ready to be released. So I let all that go for a long time until I became a parent Mm -hmm. and until I became an adult and grew in my maturity. Um, and then I let the anger and the hatred ruin a lot of living life positively. And for many years, that anger and hatred made me just an angry, bitter person when it came to the kidnapping. Um, even as recent as um, the Fred Woods recent his last parole hearing. I spoke at that and I knew that that was going to be my last time to be able to address some of that anger and hatred. And I needed to get that out, which I did. And I got to let it out. Um, Over the last few years, I have not gone to the parole hearings in person and we didn't have the option to do by zoom until recently. So over all the years, I hadn't faced any of them personally, or I hadn't shown up to the parole hearings, but I got to do that at Mr. Woods's last parole hearing. And so that allowed me to heal a little bit more. Um, I somewhat knew that he was probably going to be released. I felt that the California judicial system um, was tired of dealing with them. And I felt that they were tired of dealing with us and all our pleas that they needed to stay where they needed to stay. And so one by one, they've been released. And as I said, I let that go. It was 
out of my hands. I did everything I could to express to the parole board the damage that was done to us. And it was devastating when they overturned their life without parole. I didn't realize that years ago because I was young and I was just living my life. Um, There were a lot of things that happened after the kidnapping that the kidnapping lost its focus in my life. Um, My brother was killed five years after the kidnapping. I'm sorry. And so my family had another tragedy to deal with in 1981. And then subsequently my parents divorced and I went and lived in a foster home and my family fell apart. So I got through my teenage years dealing with that anger Mm -hmm. um, on top of the anger from the kidnapping and the scars from the kidnapping. But um, I got through my teenage years and my young adult life, how I don't know, but I did. And the kidnappers and their sentence and the overturning of the life without the possibility of parole was not something that was at the front of my mind. Until years later, like I said, when I became a parent and realized I had looked at what the kidnapping did to me and I could comprehend what it did to my brother in the short amount of time he lived after the kidnapping. But I had never comprehended what effect it had on my parents Mm. until I became a parent. And the mama bear instinct in me um, kicked in. And then I had a whole nother set of anger and resentment that I had to deal with. Um, And so, yeah, it was very disappointing when the sentence was overturned. I felt that the judicial system let us down. But now I have to look at it as hopefully the case that we had where it was based on very minimal physical damage Hopefully these days, when they look at a case, they don't just look at physical damage. Hopefully they look at the long-term effects and the long-term damage that this can have. I mean, it's been 47 years. I have a hard time going in the elevator at work. I work Mm -hmm. on the third floor. I have to either take the stairs or I have to keep my fingers crossed that the elevator gets me to the third floor. Um, I live in the South. We have tornadoes. I had to install a tornado shelter in my backyard, um, which we like to call it the wine cellar (laughs) because uh, it's buried in the ground. And I've had to go in there with my youngest son when he was a teenager and sit for an hour and a half to the point where I was literally pacing, trying not to let him see how anxious I was. But those kind of things don't go away. I mean, the physical scars may heal. But um, I'd say the emotional ones are more long-term than anybody could ever imagine. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. We spoke earlier a bit to that point um, where I mentioned how the age of the kidnappers played into their eventual parole release, obviously at different times. Uh, The... Kidnapping was described by Judge Newsom as a, quote, youthful stunt. And that dovetailed in with his approach to and commitment to felon rehabilitation. But the issue that I have with it that stuck out to me is the fact that 
the brothers exhibited remorse. They communicated to a degree of abject remorse. Woods never did and frankly flaunted uh, laws and compliance until the day of his release. In fact, there were some pending criminal issues or, or citation issues during his incarceration that were outstanding when he was released. And I personally find, again, the characterization, their age and of this absolutely horrific tragedy and lifetime trauma inflicting situation as a, as a stunt, as a youthful stunt, um, to sort of fly in the face of any American, any parent, any sibling, any human. Um, I, I just can't fathom that personally. But to your point, you know, 1976 and 1980 um, were different and were differently reflected in the criminal justice system, unfortunately. Um, now there's a greater accounting, yes, for psychological injury, especially for that of children and for traumatic effects. But to your point, you know, you said it's it's unimaginable and you're right. None of us will ever have an understanding of what you went through or the the scars that you carry only sympathy and um, my deepest prayers for your comfort and healing. What are you sitting with now or how are you holding now? If you don't mind sharing at this point with where you are in your process. When Fred Woods was paroled to me, it was a closure of a lifelong fight. Um, Early on after the kidnapping, I just was going about life day by day. Children are resilient until they're stressed again or until they're put in a situation as an adult that they have PTSD. Mm -hmm. So when I was young, it was just go about our merry way. I had to get on a school bus and go to school. I had to, you know, feed my cows. I had made a promise to God that I was going to go to church. So I went to every church in our little town, every church on every Sunday that I could get somebody to drive me to town. So I upheld my end of the bargain and God took care of me and got me out of there. So I was going to do what I needed to do to make sure that I did my chores, didn't argue with my brother and went to church. So as simple as it may seem, that's exactly how my life was for many years. And then Five years later, my brother was killed and trauma again um, affected our family and we basically fell apart. We didn't make it through that trauma. Um, my parents divorced. My mom and I moved away and life went on. And luckily for me, I had parents that encouraged us to talk about the kidnapping. We talked to reporters. Um, we talked to psychiatrists. We talked to, I mean, even in my 20s, I was going to, you know, therapy and that to deal with the, the early trauma that I had to deal with. I will say that I feel very fortunate that I had the outlets and I had the resources to do that. Um, I had some rough teenage years. Um, I had some rough young adult years. But I've been married for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. I have two grown boys. I have a new grandbaby. Um, I'm successful in my career. I feel that um, all of the United States sat and paused for, you know, all the hours that we were missing. And I feel that there's a part of me that owes it to 
society to let them know that I made it through it. I have had a a very blessed life in my adult life. I've had some, um, you know, trauma I've had to deal with, but I think it's all about what you do with that and how you handle that. I've had my share of struggles with life and marriage and kids and, you know, all that, but I have not let the three men that kidnapped us take my joy from my life. And that took me a lot of years and a lot of bad decisions as a young adult and a lot of stopping and thinking about I was given a second chance in life. And um, I, it, it's ultimately up to me on what I do with my life and how I handle, you know, what's been thrown my way. And some days it is a conscious effort um, not to watch the news, don't feed into all the drama, stay away from the stress um, because I can't have control over what's going on around me. But I have to have control over how it affects me. Mm -hmm. And if I watch the news too much with everything that goes on on a day-to-day basis, it can be traumatic for me. It can set me back. I can have a sick day from work and be in bed all day trying to deal with, you know, the crap that is going on in in the world. Um, So I'm very selective on where I go and what I do and who I associate with. And I'm very selective on what interviews I do. I'm selective on who I talk to about the kidnapping as far as, um, you know, professional outlets. Um, I do give my testimony at church and talk to women's groups Mm -hmm. about life and overcoming, you know, childhood trauma. And I've talked to college classes, psychology classes about childhood trauma because although I don't understand that side of it, I can give them insight on what I've been through and what I do to be successful in what I do with life. Going back to the, well, first of all, let me respond to, I'm so honored and grateful that I'm someone that you chose to share your testimony and your story with. I'm so grateful for you for that. And your story has been, so riveting. I'm so grateful for the details that you shared, for the details that you remembered, and for you trusting me with sharing your story in the most authentic way possible. That's honoring your personal perspective. Thank you. In the five years after the kidnapping, when you were in Chowchilla um, and your brother was with you, can you describe how the community was impacted and how the kids were, you know, treated? Was there a, a closeness, a specialness? Was there an intimacy that occurred following that? Or is there a connective tissue that sets you all together forever? Did you feel anything like that there in the community? Um, I don't remember feeling that connection right away. I do as an adult, I would say in the last 10 years, I've had a really strong bond with seven, about seven of the women that were kidnapped with me. Mm -hmm. Um, We stay in contact and um, during times of parole hearings and that we are support to each other and just in life are support to each other because there is a bond that 
I say it's similar to somebody who's been in war together, who's mm-hmm. been through a battle together, that nobody can understand what they've been through except the people that have been there. And so the, you know, insecurities and PTSD that I struggle with are the same thing that my fellow survivors struggle with. And I don't have my brother to talk things through with. I don't have my brother to, you know, console me with things. Um, And I have my parents, but my mom wasn't there. My mom wasn't buried for 16 hours in a hole. So there are only so many people in my life that I don't even have to speak and they know what I'm talking about. Um, You know, so I have that now as an adult. Um, The few years afterwards, I think our small little town was shaken to its core as far as um, was probably never the same. Um, We never locked our front door. We never locked our vehicles. My brother and I were carefree and could go wherever we wanted to in town, whenever we wanted, with whoever we wanted. Um, And after that, that that wasn't the case. My parents wanted to know where we were, who were we with, and we'll drive you, and you're going to go trick-or-treating, we'll follow you in the car. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that that was Mm community-wide, not just our families or the families that were affected by the kidnapping, because in that small town, everybody was related to somebody that was in that kidnapping, or my babysitter, or you know, my teacher at school, and it not only affected us, it affected the whole community because they had to deal with 26 kids. That's, you know, half the school, basically. And the teachers had to deal with us. The, you know, the bus drivers, I'd get back on a bus and go right back to school. Um, So the bus drivers, you know, the people around town, I mean, they didn't make excuses for us, but They'd be like, oh, she was in the kidnapping. Let's cut her a little slack. You know, she's having a bad day today. Or, you know, they understood like nobody else could understand because that was their town and we were their children. I didn't feel that um, as, a, as a young kid. I felt loved and supported. But we didn't go around talking about it. Um, during the late 70s, early 80s, you didn't talk about those things. There was no, oh, let's go to counseling. That wasn't really looked upon. And um, I know my mom and my dad caught a lot of flack from a lot of town folk because we gave interviews and we talked about it. And um, I know, you know, people thought, well, are they getting paid for this or what are we getting out of it? There wasn't anything we were getting out of it. I felt it was, I'm glad we did it because we were able to talk about things and get things out. And I'm not saying that the families that didn't, didn't heal like we healed, but that wasn't my concern. My parents were concerned with us and our family was very open about things before that. So it just made sense for us to be very open about things after that. And when they came to us to do the FBI composites, you know, when they asked who of the kids, everybody was like, those kids need to do it. They're, you know, well-spoken and their parents will cooperate. And, you know, that's who you need to talk to. So 
I mean, I feel that I was very fortunate to be able to share our story over the years. I mean, I get private messages on Facebook from people that will be like, I just saw you on this show and I remember where I was or I lived in the Bay Area or I lived in Fresno. I remember that our whole we just sat there in front of the TV for days waiting for you guys to come back. We got letters. We got phone call. I mean, and I feel that that's what you do when you try to give back to a community and, you know, I can't give back to everybody, but the people that prayed for us and cared for us and sent cards and sent letters. And when when I see some things in the news, in the very small news that I watch, something that touches my heart, I think later, I wonder how that kid is. Mm-hmm. Or I see something that happened to somebody and I think, God, I wonder, I hope that they got help. I wonder how they're doing now, years later, and I hope that they are healing and I hope that they're getting what they need. So I'd like to be able to go out there in the world and let people know that I have, I'm still a work in process, but I have led a great life and I am doing great and, you know, life is good. And it sounds like you are a really powerful prayer partner, which is priceless. As we talked about before we started recording, you know, I was telling you how I grew up in the Bay Area. I was born in 1979. My two sisters were alive during the, what happened. And I grew up with it too. So I wasn't, I wasn't alive during the actual kidnapping, but I grew up there in the Bay Area knowing all about it. It had an impact you know, every, every Californian was a chow chillin. Every, every, just like you said, the whole nation paused. Um, it left a deep imprint on all of us and all of our communities because it was so horrific and so unfathomable. The, the sheer magnitude of the trauma, um, especially the ratio of the volume of the trauma to the size of the town, um, how innocent and how in that instant, all the innocence was just removed. I mean, all of that, I, I grew up from as early as I can remember knowing that story and um, feeling deeply saddened by it. It was always very grave to us. You know, it was always a very serious and horrifying story that we all grew up with. And I remember feeling such gratitude that it ended for the most part. Okay. You know, thank God truly for the ending that did happen quick final question before we get to last word. Edward went back to driving the bus and he retired in at the age of 81. I want to say he, he retired. I think if I remember correctly, um, did you get to continue driving with him then in your, um, before you moved? I only went to summer school one more year after the kidnapping and got to have Edward as my bus driver for mm-hmm. summer school, but we saw him around town. I mean, we would see him if we went to town to go get dinner or, um, you know, at fundraisers around town or that we got to see him. And um, I got to before I left, my family left California in 2010. Um, The year before I got to, as an adult, present him with an award Mm. at a um, safety award ceremony that they had in Fresno, I got to go and present him with the award. So I got to see him before I left California, which I knew that I probably would not be back. And he was getting older. And I knew that that would probably be one of the last times that I got to see him, which I did not get to see him again because he passed away after that a few years. 
Um, I did go back to the home where his wife lived. One of the last visits that I was um, in Chachilla before she passed away, I got to go see his wife. And then um, when I do go to town, um, he's buried a few rows over from my brother in the cemetery. Mm -hmm. So I get to go see my two heroes um, when I go back to town, which is, you know, all that I have of both of them right now. What final message would you like to share, Jennifer, with the listeners or in general? Give you the final word. Well, as I've said before, I think that um, I owe it to, you know, listeners to let them know that although I have been through hell, I have been through hell and back numerous times. I feel that I've been very blessed in the life that I've lived and I have to do good with what the life that I have been given. And the sooner that I realized that the anger and the hatred that I felt for the kidnappers um, was not doing me any good, it definitely was not affecting them because I don't think they cared how I felt about any of it. Um, but it allowed me to be a better mother and be a better wife and be a better person when I let go of that. And it still is a work in progress. Um, but a part of that closed for me when the last one was released on parole. I felt that the fight was over and it was time for me to let it go um, because it wasn't doing me any good as an individual. And that's one of the hardest things and one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn is forgiveness. And although I cannot tell you right now that I forgive them, I can say that I choose not to let their actions affect my life. And um, in a way, I had to learn to realize that my self-worth was not based on what happened to me. Mm -hmm. I learned years ago in therapy that the way that I felt about myself because I felt as a child that if those adults could kidnap me and throw me in a van for 11 hours and then bury me for 16 hours, I had no self-worth. I didn't value myself because they didn't value me. And I grew up for a lot of my teenage years, made very bad decisions based on that because I had no self-worth. I do not know how I made it through my teenage years with the life that I led. Um, so I'm very fortunate that I made it. I'm a strong individual. And I tell my kids all the time when they were complaining about something, I say, you know what? <laughs> there isn't anything that I can't handle. I right. may break down. I may cry through it. I may scream and yell through it. But you know what? I have learned at a very young age that there isn't anything that I can't handle. I will get through anything. And if I can get through it, I can get my kids through it. If I can get through it, I can get my friends through it. So I try to think of what positive has come um, from my life. And that is that I had to learn my self-worth is not what those three kidnappers thought of me. My value as a human being, as an adult, as a mother, as a woman, is what I have made of it. And as soon as I learn to value myself, then great things have come to me 
and other people have valued me um, as far as work, my family, my career, my, you know, everybody that I have contact with. Um, as soon as I brought my opinion of myself up, everybody else has, you know, risen to that. And that took me a lot of years. And I think that as a young woman, I could have gone a whole lot of different directions with that. And that's one thing that I try to, when I speak to a woman's group or give my testimony at church, is that I can take credit for what I've done. I haven't done it myself. I've had a lot of help along the way from family and friends that have got me where I needed to be. But valuing myself has been the best lesson that I have learned from the kidnapping. You are fearfully and wonderfully made and no weapon formed against you shall prosper. I'm glad that you know that. It's such a funny sort of coincidence. I was just listening to a sermon actually yesterday on forgiveness and the the two scriptures, you know, be still and know that I am God. He'll take care of that justice for you as he will lay the table for your enemies. But that's a hard lesson for any human to really appreciate and really put into action because all day, every day, there's minor infractions. And then there's the kind of traumatic injustices, the true injustices that you've suffered that by human nature are really difficult for us to not feel angry and that we want to seek that justice on our own. And this oftentimes, you know, having spent so many hours involved with the criminal justice system that many feel, many millions of people feel there's no justice whatsoever in it. And when you are disheartened by that or have to work through that processing and find those lessons on your own to find that closure outside of it, it's a long road. Thank you for sharing your processing with us and thank you for sharing your healing. And I'm so grateful again for you trusting me to share your story here on this platform. It's really been incredible to hear your story and your perspective. And I'm so deeply grateful to you for sharing it. Thank you. Thank you. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.